You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building, as I try to say as often as I can, reminding us that we are the church. Uh, If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders here, Uh, the guy who is blessed most Sundays with the opportunity to preach God's word. That's surely the case this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Ruth. It's one of the most endearing stories in, in all of the Bible. Uh, in fact, when uh, people hear that their church is taking them through this book of the Bible, there is uh, much enthusiasm and um, a very little begrudging sense of having to be drugged through this, this story. It's a story of redemption born out of the ashes of, of ruin, as we've already begun to see over the first couple of weeks. The story of the wondrous hand of God's providence, the gracious action of God in history to preserve his people, which we see from Genesis to Revelation. This is just a, a zoom lens on a moment in redemptive history. God bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment in the most unexpected of ways through the most ordinary of events and most ordinary and imperfect of people. A story within, as I just mentioned, the greater story of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ. I'm going to go ahead and invite you, because I'm chomping at the bit to get into this morning's passage, to open up to Ruth chapter 1 with me. We'll be in verses 19 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to use that Bible during our time together. Feel free to take that Bible home with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. As you're turning there... I mentioned this, I believe, last week, one of the last couple of weeks, that we've chopped this up a little differently than, than churches have historically looked at the book of Ruth. Oftentimes, this will be treated as a four-week sermon series, uh, one week in each chapter, and rightly so. That's a good framing of the book of Ruth in and of itself. But there's something about slowing down, and I've talked with some of you Already over the last couple of weeks, the impact, the effect that it's had to stop, to pause, as we did in week one after verse five, where we don't yet see anything truly redemptive yet. We only see brokenness, and we, we were forced to pause and acknowledge that oftentimes that's where we find ourselves. We want to rush to the redemption on the other side of the ruin, and we can't in real time as real people uh, oftentimes, and so... I trust that this morning, just the same, will be a blessing and benefit to us to sit with just these last four verses of chapter one and see what the Lord might have for us. Let me pray for us, and we'll do just that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you deemed that the story of Ruth would make it into the canon of Scripture, one of the many stories that's a part of this greater story of redemption from ruin, That's who you are. I pray that we would see that this morning as a result of our time in this morning's passage. Lord, regardless of what we bring into this place and truly all of us bringing different experiences, emotions, and thoughts into this place from the experience of deepest bitterness to the the place of deepest celebration, Lord, and all in between, I pray that you would meet us where we are the power of your Holy Spirit, 
that you would stir our affections for you, whether it be for the first time or yet again. And Lord, that we would be glad that we came together and studied the scriptures in a together way, this means of your grace, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So if I could briefly catch us up to speed, knowing that people have been out the last couple of weeks, maybe back in the kids' wing, maybe haven't sat with a podcast or two. As we've seen over these last couple of weeks, the, the story of Ruth is set against the backdrop of one of the darkest times in all of redemptive history, in the days when the judges ruled, the time between God's post-Exodus leading of his people into the promised land and the establishment of the Israelite monarchy under the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon, a time when there was yet no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes a kind of ancient Near Eastern postmodernism of sorts in which truth and morality are relativized and the individual acts in accordance with what's true or right for himself or herself so that we're not living in the midst of the first that's my truth generation. The days of the judges, the the downward spiraling of God's people into covenant-breaking rebelliousness caught up in this recurring cycle of sin, judgment, and deliverance over and over and over again, the eye-opening details of which you can read all about in the book of Judges. The story of Ruth, beginning with a, a famine in the land, a famine in the days when the judges ruled, which a great many scholars, as we've talked about, understand this to be a theological statement, a covenantal statement, a reminder for any one of this story's earliest hearers or readers of the covenant blessings and curses laid out for Israel in the days of Moses, including the blessing of a fruitful field should Israel live in covenant obedience and the curse of a desolate field should Israel live in covenant rebellion. So that the Lord cursed the ground in the days of the judges just as he had cursed the ground in the wake of the sin of our first parents in the garden going back to Genesis chapter 3. The barren fields of Judah, of Bethlehem, in essence, God's megaphone, calling his people to return to him in repentance, in faith, in trust. It's in these darkened days of covenant rebellion and widespread famine that we're told that a man named Elimelech packed his family and journeyed to Moab, leaving the land of God's presence, the land of God's promise for one of the many surrounding lands of foreign gods. Many scholars believing Elimelech to have done what was right in his own eyes like so many others in the days of the judges. That instead of running from the land of promise, he should have run to the Lord in repentance like so many others in that day. His name meaning my God is king, his decision declaring my my choice is best. Still other scholars a little more charitable toward Elimelech and other characters in this great book of the Bible, recognizing that the author of Ruth rarely gives us clarity into the ethical decisions, the the driving motivations of of the characters as the story unfolds, so that perhaps Elimelech thought that he could relocate his family to Moab just long enough to escape the famine without uh, the inherent dangers of living in a land of foreign gods. Regardless of the heart behind the decision, as we saw last week, it's one that proved tragic as Elimelech and his family came to settle in the land of Moab over time so that it became a place of deeper roots, as is oftentimes the case with with our own wanderings from the Lord, so that what starts out as a sojourn from God becomes a new way of life over time. In the case of 
Elimelech and his family, deeper roots in the far country of Moab, leading to the deepest loss as Naomi saw the passing of her husband and her sons, their father. Kind of tragic, painful loss that one might expect would lead Naomi to return back to to Bethlehem. And yet the roots had been planted firmly in the soil of Moab by this point so that Naomi's sons fell in love with Moabite women and spent the better part of a decade establishing deeper roots in a pagan land. And with the passing of time, greater grief, greater loss, as not only were Ruth and Orpah for the better part of 10 years unable to conceive, but they too saw the passing of their husbands, the sons of Naomi, around the time that they would have celebrated their 10-year anniversaries. Tragic. Three funerals, three widowed women, The story's beginnings, much like the story of Job, right? And yet a story not completely absent of hope, going back to last week, as we're told that Naomi, in the midst of her grief, received good news out of the fields of Moab, news that the famine in Israel had finally come to an end, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so Naomi did the only thing that she knew to to do, and she packed her things, and she left the far country of Moab behind. Crossroads moment, as we saw last week, is surely about returning to Bethlehem. Yes, and amen to that, but more than that, about returning to the Lord in faith and in trust. A journey that began with Ruth and Orpah by Naomi's side, a journey that somewhere along the way came to its pivotal fork in the road as Naomi encouraged her daughters in law to return to Moab, to go back wishing for the the Lord to deal kindly with them, yet unable to envision such kindness for them to be found in Judah. Naomi herself, and we'll see this even this morning, struggling on the road to Bethlehem, not with the sovereignty of God, but with the goodness of God. Seeing herself as cursed, so that to go their separate ways would, would surely be better. To which Orpah, we saw, responded by turning back to the land of Moab, And in doing so, to both the people of Moab and the gods of Moab, verse 15, never to be heard from or heard of again. Ruth, on the other hand, as we saw, making the deepest of commitments and joining herself not only to Naomi, but to the people of Israel and the covenant God of Israel. However it happened, we don't know. Maybe Ruth heard about this God through Naomi and her family over the years. Maybe like Rahab, she had simply heard reports of what God had done in redeeming Israel. However it came to be, Ruth had heard about the people of Israel and her God, and she was convinced that there was nowhere else to go but Bethlehem and Judah, regardless of what it might cost her in leaving behind everything that she had ever known. So that we pick up the story this morning with two widowed women in two very different places. So that you have Ruth on the one hand, a woman for whom there's no looking back, A woman whom Boaz will go on to describe, chapter 2, verse 12, as having come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. A Gentile woman whose love for and devotion to the Lord would surely in the months and years ahead awaken a few Israelites from their spiritual slumber in the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then there's Naomi. A woman in an incredibly low place at this point in the story, having tasted numerous times over the bitterness of her own tears, pain and loss like many of us have never experienced, though some of you have. 
and yet she returns to the land of God's presence and promise nonetheless. Unlike the prodigal, she returns bitter, but like the prodigal, she returns. Which is what chapter one is, is really all about. As we encounter in this first chapter of the book of Ruth, the Hebrew word translated return roughly a dozen times. It's a coming home story. And not just a coming home to Bethlehem, but a coming home to the Lord. So that when you pick up in verse 19, we're told, So the two of them, that is Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? The author gives us little to no detail regarding the journey itself. Right? We're not told by what means Ruth and Naomi traveled nor how long they were on the road to Bethlehem. We're not told if either of them felt a sense of hope as they journeyed on or an unsettledness in the pit of their stomachs as they saw Bethlehem on the horizon. No details as to whether they talked to each other as they traveled or whether the vast stretch of open road was traveled in silence. Apparently, the intent of the author being to focus less on the journey itself and, and more on the arrival, with the exception, of course, going back to last week, of that pivotal fork in the road. Speaking of the arrival, right, one can only imagine what, what must have been going through Naomi's mind after all these years away in the, in the far country of Moab. How would the people of Judah treat her? Would they welcome her in? Would they look upon her with disdain? I mean, it's not like she could fly under the radar, right? The little town of Bethlehem, like any small town, one of those towns in which one person's news is news to everybody. So that we're told that the whole town is stirred by their arrival, not just a few friends or family members. Everyone having heard, more than a decade having gone by, so that the women of the town ask, is this Naomi? Are we, are we seeing this rightly? Is it you? Meaning that, at least in some way, Naomi had changed. As 10 years of age and a little time spent in the furnace of affliction will do to anyone. I didn't have this little patch of gray in my beard before 2020, and now it's here. And it's not going anywhere. Some of you know what that's like. For age and suffering to have changed you. Is it really you, Naomi? The Naomi who left for the land of Moab all those years ago? Some perhaps happy to, to see her after all these years, sympathetic to the many sufferings and sorrows she had experienced. Others perhaps unable to help themselves in looking down on her and her bitterness with a spirit of judgmentalism. A woman who got what was coming to her after leaving all those years ago. Meanwhile, where's Ruth? She's cast into the margins of the story at this point, leaving us to wonder what life in Bethlehem will be like for her as we move into chapter 2. Is the lack of acknowledgement of this woman at Naomi's side sign of things to come? Is it not just that she's going to be cast to the margins of the story, but society or are the women of the town simply captivated by the return of Naomi after all these years so that she takes center stage for them? 
Is it really you, Naomi? Verse 20, she, Naomi, said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Clearly the words of a grief-stricken woman, having tasted the bitterness of her own tears many times over. Her loss is real. The grief and pain brought about by those losses just as real. And yet her perception is so blurred by grief and pain that she struggles to see anything redemptive in the midst of the ruin at this point in the story. So that God has become in her mind this this frowning providence behind which there hides no smiling face. Perhaps that resonates with you in terms of what you bring in this very morning. If not, perhaps you know someone that that hits close to home with. The bitterness of life so great that she welcomes a new name. Right, you see that work the other way around in Scripture oftentimes, right? So that Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul from ruin to redemption. Naomi says, reverse it for me. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi meaning pleasant or sweet. Mara meaning bitter. It's not the first time that we encounter the name Mara in Scripture in association with an experience of bitterness. In fact, so close in the rearview mirror that surely Naomi and those around her in her community would have known this story and recalled it to mind. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 25. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was called Marah. There you see the connection point. Call this place Marah, a place of bitterness. Naomi says, call me Marah, which means bitter. Going back to Exodus 15, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. It was Marah where God's people grumbled because the water in that place was too bitter to drink, which is not the only time that God's people grumbled in the wilderness. Moses at one point going so far as to declare their grumbling against him, ultimately a grumbling against the Lord, against Yahweh. The bitter water of this place called Mara, a perceived lack of goodness and provision on God's part. Which, by the way, you get a nod to this at the beginning of that passage up behind me. This was only a few days after God parted the Red Sea. A few days after God rescued the people of Israel from their oppressors and led them to safety and freedom on the other side. They had quickly forgotten, as had Naomi. And looking back on the past, she recalls the bitter water of Mara while failing to recognize God's kindness in making the bitter water sweet. Perhaps more honest of human experience, 
would have been to say, call me Mara Naomi. Call me bittersweet. I've tasted the bitterness of my tears, the grief and loss of a life lived east of Eden. That's a part of the reality of what we wake up to every day. Don't ignore the bitterness or the ruin around us. Call me bittersweet. I've tasted the bitterness of my tears, and yet I cannot ignore God's mercy and grace, the many unmerited ways he's been so very kind to me. Was God kind to Israel because they brought a good posture of heart before the Lord? It was all mercy and grace. Not only in looking back on the past does Naomi recall the bitter water of Mara while failing to recognize the kindness of the Lord, the miracle of God's provision in making the bitter water sweet, but too in looking at the present, she's unable to see the Lord's kindness in that though she may feel empty inside, she hasn't truly come back empty. Verse 21. Not only do we come to learn, chapter 4, verse 3, that Naomi has inherited a parcel of land in Bethlehem, but two, she has the, the blessing of the compassionate and unwavering loyalty of Ruth, as we'll continue to see as this story unfolds, who will soon enough, Ruth will, be praised by the women of Bethlehem as being better than seven sons. And that's saying a lot in this culture. It's Ruth's compassion. It's Ruth's care. It's Ruth's, Ruth's fierce loyalty that the Lord will use to help Naomi see and trust in the goodness of God once again. His goodness visibly surrounding Naomi even now, not only in the blessing of Ruth and a parcel of land, but as we're told as the first chapter of this incredible story of redemption comes to a close, verse 22. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Not only do we see the kindness of the Lord in making sure that the good news of a harvest in Bethlehem made its way to the fields of Moab. But too, in bringing Naomi safely home to Bethlehem, the house of bread, right at the time of a harvest. So that Naomi is surrounded inescapably by the the visible and real display of God's beauty, of God's goodness, of God's provision. She just can't see it with the eyes of her heart. As is the case for many of us, isn't it? When the circumstances of life are most bitter when the dark nights of the soul are darkest. Right, this chapter, this first chapter of Ruth, beginning with a famine and ending with a harvest, reminding us that our God is a God who brings redemption out of the ashes of ruin. So that, and don't miss this in the imagery of this story, so that even the seeds of bitterness sown in Naomi's heart will not have the last word. As God will, in the unfolding of this story, bring about a harvest in her own heart of renewal and healing. If you go back to Exodus chapter 15, that story of the bitter water made sweet in the place called Mara. Just on the other side of that story, God identifies himself in a particular way to the people. He declares to them, I am the Lord, your healer. 
your healer. This morning's passage invites us to open our eyes to the many everyday expressions of God's kindness and grace to us. The barley field, so to speak. The roots whom God has kindly and providentially brought into our lives. All the while looking to the stories of redemption past, which remind us that it's in God's nature to do that, to bring redemption out of the ashes of ruin. His greatest act of redemption, the sending of his son, that we might be rescued, if I could use the language of this morning's passage, from the bitterness of our sin, and that we might taste the sweetness of salvation in Jesus Christ. A God who's always at work in the hearts and lives of his people, sovereignly purposing our good, Romans 8, even when and especially when the grief runs deepest. William Cooper in his famous hymn writes these words, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes shall ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. But if I could just remind us, in Christ, you and I are loved with an everlasting love. By a God whom we can trust is purposing even the the most bitter buds of, of life for our redemptive good and everlasting joy. Might not see it yet, but can the eyes of your heart grab hold of it, even now? In a moment, we're going to worship this God. If we could just be honest, I don't think there's a day that we wake up to that we could sit with all 150 psalms of the Old Testament and say, every lyric is where my heart is right now, resonates with me. There may be things that we're about to sing that you struggle to grab hold of, And I would just encourage you to listen to the song of the church around you. The kindness of the Lord. The new covenant community of God's people in Christ. Let the saints around you lift you up. In your lowliness. In your bitterness. In your loss. In your suffering. If you're in a good spot right now. I would encourage you to look around and to see in the life of this church family where others are suffering and struggling and ask, Lord, how can I be a blessing and benefit to them? How can I be a Naomi? How can I be patient like you are, Lord, with me and long-suffering like you are, Lord, with me and not expect people to come out of that place with immediacy, but, Lord, to walk alongside of them and keep telling them you're loved in Christ, you're loved in Christ, you're loved in Christ. Speaking of being loved in Christ, we'll have an opportunity over the course of these last few songs, whenever you're ready to do so, uh, in meeting with the Lord, to receive of the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of those elements, rather that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That You would see the bitterness, if I could use that language, of sin for what it is, your sin, and the sweetness of the hope that's ours in Christ and Christ alone, forgiveness, salvation, redemption. For we who are united to Christ by faith, 
As many of you know, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. When we can see nothing else around us in the present as it pertains to the kindness and grace of the Lord and nothing of the past stories of redemption. If we can look no further than anywhere else, we can look to the cross and empty tomb, amen? So let's do that as we receive the bread and the cup and give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.